Lockdown Diaries. Chapter 4 Lockdown Diaries. I'm Bilal Qureshi. Hi, Bilal. I'm in lockdown. That, that's Reggie Broom. He's three, and he's spending his lockdown at home in Oxfordshire, England. Unfortunately, despite his undeniable radio presence, Reggie will sadly not be joining me for the full length of this episode. The gift of that conversation comes from his mother, a dear friend, a collector of books, a reader, and a wonderful thinker I hope you'll join me to hear. I'm Clemmy Jackson-Stops, and I am in Oxfordshire, and I curate libraries and collections of books. Before my conversation with Clemmy about libraries and about motherhood in lockdown, a little backstory. Clemmy and I were briefly roommates in our early 20s in Lahore. She was on her gap year after university, and I was trying to kickstart my journalism career by coming back to the Pakistani motherland. We had thankless jobs as entry-level copy editors at an English newspaper, but where we flexed all our thinking muscles was in our long drives through traffic debating everything from the merits of the office chai to the legacy of the British Empire. Clemmy is one of those extremely thoughtful and precise readers who know exactly which book and writer to reach for and to quote from to untangle a question. I was not surprised when she grew up to become a successful bookseller at home in London. And in going back to my books, I find great comfort, and I think a lot of people do. Several years ago, after she got married and became a mother, Clemmy and her husband, Ali, decided to leave London for the English countryside. She and Ali now have a one-year-old named Ted and her three-year-old son, Reggie, who you heard from earlier. As lockdown has deepened, I've been reflecting on how and maybe even where I'd like to live after all of this, about the future of our cities where distance is a luxury. And I've been thinking about Clemmy's life and the rhythms of the country life she's chosen. I am living in a small 200-year-old cottage in the middle of grassland. Come, Maggie. And the nearest house is probably a three- or four-minute drive away. And our house is small and full of books. But the situation that I'm living in now, in a sense, the books take a backseat. I don't really notice them. What I am is surrounded by the clutter of daily life with children everywhere. Mud and tractors and all that sort of thing. It's very unglamorous. It's very domestic. It's partly completely amazing and partly incredibly frustrating. And it swings between the two (laughs) all the time. This chapter of Lockdown Diaries is an honest conversation about family life, about country life, and about what it means to have a reading life. It's a conversation I'd love for you to hear. I reached Clemmy a few days after the UK became one of the worst affected countries in the world. It was soon after she'd put her kids to bed, some personal time in the only visible cottage with the lights on, in the vast darkness of those English fields. The thing that I I find I was thinking about is that you don't already live in a city. You live out in the country. Yes, totally. I mean, we've been joking that to a certain extent, you know, we self-isolate the whole time. You know, we don't have anyone around us. So when I look out across the fields, I might see one other person, a shepherd, 
from a distance in a day. Um, but otherwise, I don't see anyone apart from my family, two of the three of whom aren't capable of holding a decent conversation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, we are obviously in the height of here in the UK, like spring is coming out. So everything is turning green and we're having this period of warm weather and there's lambs in the field and all the blossom has come out and all the grass has gone green, all in the space of time since lockdown happened. So it's been a really extraordinary and kind of amazing experience in that way. Plus, I'm moving at the speed of a one-year-old and a three-year-old. Um, for the first time, I'm moving at their speed and they're not moving at my speed. And that is an extraordinary experience as well. So even for you, because you already live out in the country and, and, and sort of in a kind of self-isolated way, even your version of life is not just like a continuation of the same kind of socially isolated way you're used to living. It's even no. taken a different direction. Totally different direction. I think one of the things I've really noticed about this whole period of lockdown is that I've become incredibly aware of how everything works in opposition. It's been, re I mean, I've obviously always been aware of it, but I've kind of, it's really been driven home to me in that. So here we are in lockdown because of this awful thing that's happening globally that creates tension and stress on the one hand in me and globally for everyone. But what has come hand in hand with that is actually this opportunity to remove masses of my day-to-day to-do list that's, you know, racketing through my brain the whole time to kind of spend time and to appreciate what I've got in the square of my garden and my house and my family in a way that I just don't think I could have ever done without this situation happening. I feel like it's an incredibly unique experience. I feel like I'm living in the 50s. Apparently, the traffic on the roads in the UK is as it was in 1952. You know, I can't hear the road from my house at all, which we can hear across the fields normally. There are no aeroplanes in the sky. It's, the bird song is unbelievable. You know, I go out, I don't really see any cars. I go to the village shop. We stand in a queue on the street in the village shop and everybody chats and has a laugh. It's a completely different environment. And the opposition of it, you know, up against the kind of dark side of this whole situation really brings it all into like strong relief, I think. So even though I live in the middle of the field all the time, this is a totally unique situation for me to be in. Well, rewinding to kind of the decision to live in the field to begin with, I think one of the reasons yeah. I, I was quite interested in asking you about this time is that when we, you know, have gotten to meet in the UK and when you lived in London and you kind of grew up in the city, mm. but you spent a lot of time in London and you lived there for a long time. And I also feel like the decade that has passed or the last 15 years has been kind of all about the city, right? That the globally urbanity is the yeah. sort of center of the world. Like that's where art happens, that's where culture happens, that's where life happens, that's where all the cool people are, that's what culture is about, yeah. is about life in the city. And I also think that in a moment like this, there are people who have the privilege to do so who are leaving to try to go to the country because it's almost like the cities are the really dangerous places. The urbanity is also, going back to your point about oppositional ways of thinking, the very thing that has kind of been thriving, the city, urbanity, connectivity, is the very thing that threatens people's health the most. And in your decision to have left London as well a few years ago, you also made a kind of early stage gamble on the notion that you could continue your life without 
the kind of vortex of the city. It's true. We did take that gamble, and we both felt that the what the countryside could bring us and bring our children outweighed the benefit of being in the city in the long term. And I suppose that's partly to do with identity. I grew up, I spent 15 years living in London, but prior to that, I grew up in the countryside. So my childhood was in the countryside. So I think I identify as a rural person. <laughs> um, and so it's coming back to that and it's kind of accessing that part of my identity. But this lockdown, you know, in some ways our lives haven't changed so much. But I feel like I've gained connection a lot with a lot of people. We've spent a lot more time with friends online than we ever have. And I really hope that that's something that goes forward. It's been really great. I've really enjoyed that. I think it's weird. I think some, in some ways, it's like I've, I've had a recent reunion with college friends after like, and it took this moment for us to do this. And I, and I think all of us are kind of wondering, like, we don't really normally do this. And why haven't we done this in the like 15 years since we graduated? Because <laughs> mm. it's like actually Zoom has existed before coronavirus. So I think that yeah. it's like a strange thing too, that there are people that we've maybe put in our to-do list to be in touch with and connect with and you kind of keep putting it off. And that's something else. I mean, sometimes I think it's like a little overwhelming how many people are suddenly available to talk online, I have to say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, me too. It's like almost like you can kind of call anyone and they're usually like, yep, I'm around, um, which is a, a kind of strange opening to many people's homes that you didn't think you had before. I wonder if it's kind of busted this um sort of myth of busyness is built up in modern life where you know kudos comes from being busy everybody talks about how busy they are how they non-stop can't stop don't have any time to think and they complain about it ceaselessly and yet it's improving their street cred exponentially every time they tell anyone how busy they are for the first time ever no one no one is i mean sorry lots of people are incredibly busy but there are a lot of people who aren't busy and we all share that for the first time ever. And certainly in like modern life, we haven't lived in that way before. And I wonder if going back into real life, is busyness still going to be something that we crow about? Or is it going to be that we want slowness and peace and quiet and gentleness? And is that what we're going to see value in that we haven't previously because we are actually being forced to experience it now one well, of the things that the word essential is kind of quite interesting because a lot of the administrative policies are that non-essential tasks are not to be done or you know there's the language of kind of what's essential and what's non-essential and i and you know essential like in in you know some countries it's like only essential workers have should be moving and should be traveling and it's kind of clarifying as you said earlier that there is a lot of life that's actually not essential yeah <laughs> and that i think is interesting because a friend I was talking to was describing how a lot of like great cultural movements in the arts and literature and writing and thinking often follow, you know, great crises. And whether that's like modernism in the 20th century as emerging out of like World War One or postmodernism and sort of post-war art, whether, you know, essentialism is actually an idea of thinking about cultural m movement that could come now, because in a way it's sort of this whole time is about a kind of forced editing that everyone's being made to do. You know what I mean? To really return to kind of yeah. the essence of what it is that they do or the essential of what it is that they need their day to be um, because there isn't a lot of time for non-essential things. 
I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that what's extraordinary about the lockdown is that we probably could have all written a list of what was essential before, of what should have been essential. But what lockdown has done has, for me certainly, has forced me to realise what those essential things feel like. You know, what it feels like to only have those essential things. And I mean, I say essential loosely here because, you know, I've got nice food from a supermarket. I'm not exactly, you know, battening down the hatches. But, you know, actually to spend time with my family and to move at the speed of my family. And I could have told you that spending time with my family was, you know, and to enjoy the moments as they unfold, you know, the sweet moments of my children while they're young was certainly something that I would have seen as essential before. But now I feel them to be essential. Now I know they are because I've got the time to enjoy them. And my mind isn't being distracted by the 4,000 things on my to-do list, you know, and the career I want to have and the jobs I need to get done and the, you know, all those things. I don't have any of that at the minute. It's just all to one side. And I do very simple tasks every day. And that's it. Well, you know, the other thing is, I think for some people, um, and I think this is, there's like articles coming out about this and all the kind of lockdown writing that's happening Mm. around the challenge that some people are having to have to be at home with their kids or with their partner for this kind of uninterrupted extended time. Because in some ways, it's also, you know, you really have to be uh, with them and you've made a little bit of light of it but like you know it can be challenging as well to have to move at the pace yeah. of other people all day and and to deal with yeah. you know like my husband and I are now both working out of the same one room that we're in and we're sort of having to hear each other's work phone calls and like processes and and deal with each other in different ways and at the same time for us it's kind of been strange because it's coming almost a year to our wedding and I think you get married and you sort of are like, okay, now I'm married. But like, this is like a true testament to like, now I live with this person all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And like, it's, yeah. a, it's a real kind of like, this is what you actually um, have signed up for. Uh, and Absolutely. And say that like, it is like a very interesting way to be marking a one year anniversary only with each <laughs> other all the time. I mean, that is intense. <laughs> that is an intense way to really decide that you... Yeah, you made the right decision. It's one thing to have an anniversary <laughs> dinner. It's another to have like an anniversary month. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. For sure. I mean, it is. And I definitely felt at the beginning of this process a kind of a panic slightly at what that was going to evolve, which is an extraordinary thing, isn't it? That I was, you know, a bit of a panic about spending time with my children and my husband thinking, oh, you know, how am I going to entertain my children 24-7? My husband and I are not going to get a minute apart from each other. Um, how how does this unfold? <laughs> like, and I, for me, that's definitely part of what this whole thing has been, which is this real, to use an overused term, roller coaster, because one minute you're having this kind of Glorious moments only come about because you've had all this time with your family. Sweet moments that you'll always remember. And then the next minute you realize quite how stressful it can be and (laughs) all the downsides of the situation. And I feel like I've moved from one state to another back and forth the whole time in a way that I wouldn't normally do. I would normally live a more kind of level emotional existence. That I think has just been so interesting. What I think is interesting, Sue, is going back to like essentials for you. I mean, the other thing is a big part of your life has always been reading and books. 
And I think yes. what I already can hear in, in what you're sort of starting to do, it seems, is if you don't mind me saying it, kind of thinking about this time as a reader or as a writer would, beginning to look for through lines, you know? And I think yes. I say that because I think that's one of the things that people who tend to live in fictions or in imaginative worlds of some kind tend to do. Like I grew up, you know, loving movies. So I often thought that everything was a bit of a movie and like what is happening in this movie, <laughs> you know? And and I think yeah. that in a, in a way, I think a person who's very... Um, ignited by literature and narrative like begins to try to find meaning in things quickly or maybe just more viscerally than other people might I'm not sure or instinctually even um, whether it's whether those are accurate conclusions or not is one thing the point being it's an inclination or an impulse that kicks in and in a weird way like we're almost all living in some kind of a book right because mm. like I've actually been having a hard time reading other books because I find that our own lives right now, or rather, it's like, you know, you're experiencing something significant. Yes, definitely. I mean, I think the the thought about kind of finding the through lines, I mean, maybe that's why you end up being a reader or a writer, because you're looking for people to help you find those through lines all the time through life. So in a situation like this, you're looking for them yourself to find a way of I suppose, kind of telling the story to yourself or to anyone else of what is going on. That's definitely my inclination. I agree with like not wanting to, I haven't read very much. I mean, partly because I'm quite busy in the day with my children, but the only thing that I have thought about in terms of reading and the reading that I'm doing at the moment is I've been reading a lot about the wartime experience in Berlin of the Second World War. And I'm constantly struck at the adaptability of the pe of people, you know, that humans adapt to their environment incredibly quickly and in the most extraordinary way. And on a very small level in comparison, you can see that happening in the situation that we're in now. You know, how quickly we all adapt to the bizarre scenarios we've found ourselves in is, I think, amazing. And the resilience of people, there's obviously all the the medics and the doctors and the nurses and their work they're doing, they're incredible. But I keep thinking also about, say, the supermarket worker who is out every day, who never imagined that they would be on the front line of a situation like this, being a key worker, being an essential worker, putting themselves at risk in order to feed their nation. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. And yet there they are every day turning up. It's incredible. I think it's so amazing. And I think it shows the resilience of people. And I really feel that. And I can you know, see that connection in some of the things I've been reading, obviously, albeit in a smaller way. You mentioned World War II in Berlin, and you've been reading about people's adaptation yeah. at that time. Are there, I mean, you know, I mean, England, of course, I mean, of course, the English countryside is a, is a great literary font as it is. But then also, I, I think about, you know, someone like Virginia Woolf and the idea of a room of one's own, which, of course, she was writing in that essay about being an artist and being about being a woman artist specifically and the role of having personal space and domestic space to create. Um, and I've been thinking about that essay and I read it often in part because, it, you know, it's it's like we're all now finding ourselves in rooms of our own, you know. And, and one of the things yeah. that she kind of writes a lot about I found really inspiring is that it's really hard, and still is, for women in particular, but for a lot of people who pulled in lots of different directions to find the time to be with your own thoughts. Is there something like that that you 
come back to often or regularly or you find yourself rereading? Oh, I find it so difficult without looking at my bookshelf, but probably, I mean, the book that I most go back to finally in my life, I don't even really know why, but I'm always drawn back to The English Patient. There's something about that book that I can reread it every time as though I haven't read it before. I would happily do that. If there was one book, I think it'd probably be my book to go back to if that was the only book I could read. I just watched the film for the first time as an adult in an earlier part of this year while I was sick. And then I picked up the novel to read, which I'll confess for me was this year for the first time, knowing that it had won the Booker of the Bookers or, or an award of that kind. Oh. Um, and I realize that it's it's not a conventional novel at all. And um, and you know, right now a lot of people have been talking about reading poetry and finding that easier than reading long form fiction. Um, and the English Patient is interesting because it doesn't really follow a traditional structure of a novel. It has this sort of cyclical form of writing that you can return to because it's yes. kind of mysterious and it's a quite veiled novel yeah. and a challenging novel in terms of how it's constructed mm -hmm. and delivered. Um, it's very bad. I completely agree. I mean, I think that's why I like going back to it so much because, I mean, if you ask me now to give you the plot line of The English Patient, I would have to think quite hard. I mean, obviously I could give you the highlights, but it has this sense of being very veiled. And as you say, it is very cyclical. You're going back and forth in time and space. And so you never quite know, I think, the writing has an incredible draw and he evokes place incredibly well. But I think it is that sort of sense of mystery about it that means that I can go back to it every time and I'm delighted by something I've forgotten. When I also think without making the most super obvious and like cliche comparison, like we're all sick and the English patient is about illness and a patient, um, I will say that when I discovered... Um, you know, when I when I reread it and, and then watched the film version, which is a work of art in its own right, uh, yeah. I sort of took away that it's really a book about memory and about what you hold on to in yourself, even if you're physically incapacitated, as the title character is. And I think in a strange way to me, mm. more than what it has to say about illness and healing, uh, things that are currently very relevant to us, I, I think it's that for stopping at the heart of the English patient that a lot of us have been made to experience. You know, I think archive and memory is confronting a lot of us in unexpected ways. And that's what's interesting about how you've even described spending deep time with your family and deep time with the things you want to do. Mm. I, mean, I mean, to me, the English patient is about what we construct when we're forced to stop moving as the characters in that novel are. You know, they're forced to practice this domesticity in this house because the novel is about this abandoned villa that mm. all of these people find themselves stuck in at the end of the war. Yeah, yeah. Two things I was just thinking about. I mean, I think one thought that occurs to me is that for the first time in two generations, we're living through a period of time, certainly in the UK. I'm not going to put this to the whole world at all in the UK, where we feel like we're living in a time that we will tell our children about, that we're part of a greater situation. So in terms of that kind of archive and memory, I think that we are feeling that in a way that we haven't before. And I don't think our parents' generation did, particularly. And also with the archive and the memory and 
that referring back, I think people are having the time to do that too. Seems like a lot of people are going back through their photographs for the first time in however many years or doing the jobs that they've always wanted to do, looking back at that time. And I think that is kind of creating a kind of identity to this time for people too. You also, in your work, help people assemble libraries and you've worked as a bookseller and, and in kind of the book world for a long time. In a strange way, I mean, we find ourselves all kind of locked in our homes having to confront whatever libraries we've assembled. Um, and because I happen to be moving in the middle of this, I only have like what I could fit into a suitcase. So I have this small kind of portable library of just the books I really wanted to read at the moment. But what do you think about the sort of notion of what people's personal and private libraries could and should mean at this time? For me, my libraries are a place to return to of kind of their touchstones of the places I've been and the thoughts that I've had and the people that I've met. And in going back to my books, I find great comfort. And I think a lot of people do. I think it's an amazing opportunity to go back into your library and look at all those books that you bought thinking you'd read immediately and how many years later you still haven't touched and to kind of fall back on that. And perhaps also one of the things that I love about libraries and about collections of books, be they big or small, is finding your way through your reading in a kind of journey. So you read one thing and something catches your imagination or a topic and you let that lead you to the next book and then onwards to the next book and I think the books in your own library are a great place to do that you know you've usually obviously chosen them because something in them caught your imagination but finding those connections between them and letting those um, points of interest or topics characters or places lead you to the next is so exciting and actually this in a way is a really lovely time to be able to do that and to enjoy those books that you have already got at home. I had this overarching idea of, of um, what I wanted to do with these diaries and, and not to be rhymy but but you know ask people that I really love speaking with you know, what they're mourning, yearning, and learning at this time. And mm. and you've answered all of those questions for me without me having to ask you in such a pointed, um, obvious way. Um, <laughs> exactly. Well, Clemmy, thank you so much for taking this time in your evening, now that your kids have fallen asleep, uh, to take some time to chat and have the call we've been talking about having. You know, sometimes we just, mm. and I'm guilty of this too, just don't pick up the online phone and do it. Um, but now it seems there's an opening uh, to have done it so so thank you oh it's a real pleasure it's a real pleasure to um well look there we go carving some time to do some thinking so um thank you for prompting me into doing it it's been great um and always lovely to chat to you You can learn more about Clemmie's libraries at vellumlibraries.com including her new lockdown libraries project Thank you again for listening to my radio diaries and taking the time to write and to share yours. This has been a B-Sides production. Our music is by Zay Bungash. I'm Bilal Qureshi, and you've been listening to... The Lockdown Diaries! Thank you again, Reggie Broom.